You are entering the Freedom Hut. Is mid-June the breaking point for pretty much everybody in the country on lockdown? We've got a poll that answers that. Plus, the models are claiming that deaths will soon rise because of the reopening. How true does that look to be at this point? How much more testing do we need? What is the COVID Manhattan Project? The truth about Sweden. Supreme Court punts on gun rights here in NYC. And Joe Biden promotes economic intercourse. Coming up. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We're doing everything in our power to heal the sick and to gradually reopen our nation and to safely get our people back to work. They want to get back to work and they want to get back to work soon. There's a hunger for getting our country back and it's happening and it's happening faster than people would think. Ensuring the health of our economy is vital to ensuring the health of our nation. These goals work in tandem. They work side by side. It's clear that our aggressive strategy to slow the spread has been working and is saving countless lives. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. President Trump addressing the nation uh, yesterday on just how well we're doing here. Hmm. We got to get reopened. We all know that. The, The consensus has finally shifted toward that. It's not yet a consensus. There's still a lot of holdouts. There are a lot of people that don't seem to believe that reopening needs to happen. But there is a poll out, and this was uh, linked up on Drudge, which has really just been uh, a, a one big uh, fear-mongering blog for quite some time now on this issue. I'm not saying that they're, they haven't uh, been putting up some things that were important, but there's been no, there's been no willingness to, to uh, put alternate opinions up there that I've seen. And also a whole lot of fear mongering about stuff that's just not true. Look, if, if we don't have immunity to uh, COVID-19, for example, uh, that would be a shock to the medical community. The expectation is that if we have one disease that's out there that you've had and then it passes based on everything we know about viruses and virology, the expectation is that you will have some degree of immunity for a period of time. Why we have to keep being reminded every five seconds that we haven't yet proven that out seems to me to be a, a catastrophism syndrome here. There are those who, no matter what you say, no matter what the news is, they can find some way to make it negative. They can find some way to tell you, oh, well, that's not actually, that's not proven yet, or that's not going to happen yet. And you say, well, if that's true, if the catastrophists have their way, we're effectively going to be in a state of lockdown forever. Right. If, if antibody testing doesn't really test for antibodies, if there's no good therapeutics, including hydroxychloroquine, which the left has been rooting against openly, as we've seen, if Gilead Pharmaceuticals drug remdesivir doesn't work, which it seems like right now it's it's uh, dubious that it works. We're not we're not certain that it doesn't work, but it looks un, it looks unlikely. And if we're not going to have a vaccine, maybe for 18 months, maybe ever, we don't know. Uh, well, then what's the plan to stay locked down for basically forever and just live like we're, we're, you know, moles underground or something in our homes who only get to see the sunlight sometimes? This is absurd. 
This is this is completely and utterly deranged. And the people that push this now are very much invested, especially those that have large platforms and those that were doing the fear mongering, including if you don't agree with us, you want granny to die. That's what they were saying for weeks, including to people like me uh, who want a maximum a maximum protection of life while also continuing our way of life. And this is a balance. This is not perfect. It's never perfect. And anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. But as for how long we could continue to do this, if, if you listen to those on the left, they keep saying we need we need better testing. We need better testing. This has become a fixation. We're nowhere close to what they say we have to be uh, where we have to be in, in terms of testing. And this is a, a disease that's largely asymptomatic that's already spread through 25 percent of the population, for example, in New York City. What are we going to do? Test everyone every two weeks? for the forever to see if they have this well, what's really the plan yeah you have testing in place so that people can find uh people can find out if they have it and if they have symptoms they can uh, they can make sure they self-isolate but i have not yet seen the plan for what other than just vast numbers of tests it's it's as though we think the test is is a cure uh unto itself it's not it's it's something that we will uh we will get to Later on in the show, uh, this has become the the go to of the lockdown forever course because they can't just say lockdown forever. So it's oh no, 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 just wait. Just wait until we get the tests exactly right. And when we have widespread testing, which means uh, a factor of, well, I, I don't want to share the number quite yet because I think it'll be jaw dropping when you hear how much more testing we have to do before the lockdown consensus will say we are being reasonable. Remember, testing doesn't prevent spread of the disease, doesn't cure the disease. So it will still spread and there will still will still be cases of people who get it and who die from it, no matter how good the testing is. But this is what they're promoting as some kind of a, uh, an answer to all of this. Meanwhile, the economic bills are getting steeper and steeper. The damage to people's lives and livelihoods is becoming more irreparable over time. Our psychology is dramatically suffering. Our health is suffering. I wonder how we're going to count the the dead from lack of preventative uh, health care interventions in hospitals because of all the shutdowns of, quote, elective procedures. How many people that are, are uh, dealing with cancer, getting chemotherapy uh, that had chemo delayed that maybe timing was the difference here between beating the disease, getting it into remission and not? You look at the costs that have been imposed upon us and then what the real benefit so far has been. And there's no mathematical correlation. There is no way to prove based on all the data we have that this stuff that we've done was worth it so far. Yeah, the, the deaths have gone down, but we've been social distancing. We've been much more cautious about about spreading this disease. And that's just a, a matter of public knowledge in large part. Um, but we have also seen a massive spread in areas where it was likely to spread because of uh, because of population density. We really going to think that it's a success that we're bending the curve in New York City. A quarter of the city was infected. So, you know, how how much do we really think we bent the curve versus how much did this thing spread unrestricted? And then we just showed up and said, OK, well, now everyone stay home and lock down. Instead of what I think would have been a smarter position all along, which is protect the vulnerable age and comorbidity are statistically enormous factors in this. 
If you are under 50 years old and in reasonably good health, this disease is of minimal threat to your life. It's not a zero threat, but it's minimal. If you're between 50 and 70 and in good health, you really don't want to get this disease. You want to be careful, but you know your, your, your odds are still very much in your favor if you did get it, based on all the data that I've seen. If you're over 70 and or you're over 50 and have a really serious health problem, you're at, you're at considerable risk. And there needs to be uh, an honest discussion about how to make sure that we protect people. Not ju- and by the way, not just protect them, but protect people who are at high vulnerability while also ensuring that they have access to what they need, that, they're, that they are being taken care of, that they're still, if they're people who work, that their teleworking situation or their whatever, whatever needs to be done to help those folks. And a lot of them are going to be retirees, but not all of them. A lot of them are going to be no longer in the workforce. But for those who, you know, and and even if they're not in the workforce, need to make sure that we're still very connected to them. There needs to be an effort so that they don't feel like they've been forgotten or they're just being locked away, especially as we now see our medical community has not been able to come up with squat so far to defeat this virus. Yeah, maybe hydroxychloroquine works. Maybe it doesn't like looks like it's probably going to be more of a prophylactic than any kind of actual Uh, miracle cure. I mean, there's I think we're way past the miracle cure stage now. It's not like you take this and you're better. Maybe it's effective in the early stages. Um, But they've done a poll. And this is what I was mentioning on the Drudge Report before. They've done this poll. Seventy two percent of lockdown Americans say that they will reach the breaking point by mid-June, which is really what I've thought all along. And I I, I think that they they say mid-June, but it's really June. People will be done with this. I'm already pretty much done with it. I mean, I look, I think that the uh, the demand that everybody wear masks in public is dumb. It's dumb. Uh, there's there's no real science or data to back this up. It's just it's just fear and panic. And now people have given into this. I mean, when I see people jogging with a with a face mask on, all I can think about is how uncomfortable that must. And then this is normal in New York. Now you see people jogging with face masks on. This is absurd. Uh, you see people that are that are on bicycles going 20 miles an hour with face masks on. Why? Well, because our, our leadership now realizes that they've they've already imposed heavy costs on our day to day lives. They've imposed massive costs on our economy. So for them, it's just a it's just why take any risk? Why not take a maximum position of defensiveness against the virus? That way you can always say I did everything I could to save every life. That's their position now. Just wait until we really start to feel the economic impacts of this. And they'll start to say that they had no choice, that this was forced upon them. You know, right now, they're all heroes saving every life. If it saves one life, they want to do it. When we have to start dealing with the real economic impact of this, there'll be a change. And all of a sudden, you'll hear a lot of these politicians saying, oh, but it was a a federal mandate or, oh, the governor made me do it or the Congress passed the law that said we had to do this or that or whatever. They're going to find some excuse. Dr. Fauci said, Dr. Burke said. So just wait for that. No one's going to want to be held accountable, especially when they realize that a lot of these businesses aren't coming back, aren't going to be able to reopen. And when they also realize the federal government's pocketbook is not, in fact, endless and there will be limitations put on this. And there has been a massive destruction, a real destruction of wealth that has occurred uh, because of this lockdown. 72% saying they'll reach the breaking point by mid-June. A lot of people have already reached the breaking point, they say. 
right now. 20% of women surveyed have already said that they're already there. 12% of men surveyed say the same. Half of women felt they'll hit rock bottom within four weeks, 76% in two months. I think that for a lot of parts of the country, this whole, uh, th this whole approach has just been so clearly wrongheaded and so destructive and it just shows how there are certain centers of power in the country, one of them being here in New York City, because it's really still the media heart of the country. Uh, and of course, Washington, D.C. and the major cities in general and the influence that they have on national conversations and on, on politics. It's well beyond just their population numbers. I think that we see that outsized influence in the in the decision to really treat all of America like it was New York City. If the rest of the country had New York City numbers for this, first of all, I mean, the death, the death toll would just be mind-bogglingly horrible. Uh, it's already a terrible death toll. It's over 50,000. But you can imagine if you extrapolated that out to the rest of the United States, you know, it would be, it would be the worst disaster to befall any country in the, in the post-World War II era, for sure. Um, you look at this, though, and you realize that the rest of the country is not New York. So since the rest of the country is not New York, why did we take a New York, uh, a New York centric approach to how to deal with this virus? And I would just note that there were clearly mistakes made in this process. There have been mistakes made all along. The government is not all of a sudden comprised of geniuses who only have your best interests at heart and are not subject to the whims of the mob and trying to please the main editorial boards of large newspapers. All of that is still true of every bureaucrat you see out there. They have pressures. They're just people, too, man. They've got their own problems when it comes to giving us just the most astute and correct analysis. It's often influenced by outside factors, and they won't tell you that, but we know that it's true. Uh, you also have the lingering effects of this, even if the economy were to open, which, which is something else I want to talk about. As we're reopening, we're going to see that psychology affects what a reopen even means and what people are willing to do and what where they're willing to go in all of this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. If everybody wears a face mask, then you're protecting the other person because it's really having the yeah. asymptomatic individuals wearing masks. But since you don't know if you're one of those, really everyone needs to in those kind of social gathering situations as long as there's virus still in the community. When is virus not going to be in the community? This is what I'd like someone to try to answer for me. So we're going to be wearing masks forever. You know, people are going to be going to their, their prom, not this year even. I mean, next year, everyone's going to be wearing masks. When does this end? Not virus in the community. You know, viruses in the past have died out, and epidemiologists don't even really know why. They have theories, but they can't really tell you. When does this one die out? When do we get to stop wearing masks? We never have an answer until we have a vaccine. Uh, the history of vaccines for diseases like this is not something that is going to make you feel much better about our prospects of a vaccine anytime soon or anytime for that matter. So we have to keep wearing masks. huh? When do we eradicate this from the community? I, I do feel like we've had so many people that we've been on lockdown uh, up to this point, and, and yet we're still hearing about you know, more and more, more and more people, more and more infections. How is this happening if we're all still on lockdown and we have now I'm not of course there's going to be some frontline workers and I'm not saying it, it could be completely eradicated. 
But given the extreme situation that we put ourselves in, where so many people are locked at home, so many, and we've done this for weeks and weeks and weeks, well beyond the incubation period of the virus. Shouldn't the virus be suppressed to an almost, you know, a, 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 a level that would be, it would be hard to find new cases? Instead, we got you know, new cases here, new cases there, new cases all over the place. Well, how is this transmission happening? Do they ever really look into this? You know, you, you walk around, for example, in New York, there's no one on the streets. There's no one leaving their houses except to buy groceries. Grocery stores, you got to have masks on. You only have essential workers going into work these days. They have masks on. They're going into buildings that are basically empty. People aren't riding the subway. And we're the, the test case, right, of the worst situation possible in terms of the spread of this disease for this, this country. And yet we're, we're, we're still having, you know, outbreaks of the disease. So what, where, how is it happening? I mean, I think that that's fair. I understand that you can theorize for me that someone, like I said, if you work at a grocery store, if you work at one of the few essential businesses that are open, you're being exposed to people all the time. But if everyone's so everyone's wearing the face mask, we're we're doing everything that they're telling us to do is really what I'm trying to get at here. And yet the virus is still out there. It's still going to be in the population. Okay, how do we get it to not still be out there in the population? Uh, What what do we really have to do for that to, to be the case? Because. Otherwise, we have to just accept, and this is the, the approach that you are starting to see people understand we have to take. Otherwise, you have to accept that we're just going to have to learn to live with this thing, which was really the case from the beginning. And again, the two-week lockdown so that we could get hospitals up and ready, get the PPE in place. Two weeks, this country, can we could sustain a two-week lockdown. And let me tell you, I think we're going to see lockdowns like that in the future. If there's a bad flu season, people are going to say, oh, we're going to lock down the whole state for a week or two. And if you if you disapprove, it's going to be because you want granny to die for your 401k. We've already run this test and a lot of people fall right into that. They think that that's fine. But okay, you had a two week lockdown that extended into now a six week lockdown that's about to extend for most places into a 10 week lockdown. And yet we still have to be in fear, constant fear of this virus everywhere, even though we're taking all of these precautions to prevent the spread of this virus. I mean, shouldn't it realistically shouldn't virus transmission, shouldn't the transmission of this virus be down to the last month, you know, 95 percent across the country? Shouldn't it have just fallen? If what we're doing is really that effective, shouldn't it have just fallen off a cliff? I'm asking questions here. I mean, I don't have all the answers. Some people pretend to. You know, some people are hiding out in bunkers somewhere, uh, you know, trying to tell all the rest of us how, how we should be operating. You know, I'm here in New York actually doing stuff, getting out there. And I want I want answers to these questions for reasons of my day to day life and for the country. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've been telling you that we're going to take a look at states around the country as this reopen process unfolds. We have Congressman Andy Biggs, who represents Arizona's 5th District, with us now to tell us what he sees at the state level, also at the national level with all these things going on right now. Congressman, thanks so much for making the time for us. My pleasure, bud. Good to be with you. All right, let, let's start, if we can, let's start if we with can. your, uh, your op-ed, uh, the Fauci... Burke's Doctrine of Destruction. This is uh, this was in the Washington Examiner. It was by you and Representative Ken Buck. What is the doctrine of the Fauci Burke's Doctrine of Destruction? Just so folks can all get on the same page here. Yeah, when I, what we're talking about is an absolute disregard for everything else other than um, their policy of trying to contain this virus. If that means 
quarantine everybody, whether you're healthy or not. Uh, it means basically shutting the entire economy down. It means abrogating civil rights and constitutional liberty. That is the doctrine of destruction that I see in these two. And what are you uh, what are you hoping the administration does from here on out? It seems like the president is offering states like yours, Arizona, the ability to make some of their own determinations about the speed. They put out guidelines for them. They've said they'll backstop them. Is that the right federal response? Is there anything else you'd want to see other than perhaps, as you note, a little bit less reliance on the Fauci Burke's advice? But anything you want to see from Trump and the federal response? Yeah, I, I think there are two or three things they should do. I think the first thing you have to do is they have to bring confidence to the public that the uh, that we're in, we're coming back to normal. And the way you do that is you got to move Fauci and Burks off stage, and you got to start talking about uh, other uh, realities with regard to this, where other folks have said basically come in and said this this uh, quarantine is a real problem. You have to tamp down on the societal impact of the Fauci uh, Burks doctrine. And that is to say you have increased suicides, you have uh, child abuse increase, uh, domestic violence, you have drug and alcohol dependence increasing. Um, and then and, and then you also have the economic considerations as well. So you have to tamp down on what Burks, uh, Fauci and Burks have done and you have to step up with the confidence building on the bully pulpit side. And the third thing you have to do is you have to recognize we're a free people, we're a responsible people, and you provide opportunities for people who don't want to come out, who want to stay in, and those who probably should stay in, the most vulnerable who should stay in, you let them stay in and you you keep outlining that doctrine over and over again, but you open up this country and you encourage governors to do so. And you also remind them that should they continue to abrogate civil liberties um, and destroy their own economies, there will be no backstop from the federal government. We're speaking to Congressman Annie Biggs of Arizona. I, that was actually my, my next question for you. What do you make of the current back and forth over, uh, it's really between Mitch McConnell and some assorted Democrats, where there's already talk of a bailout for the states. There are clearly some Democrat states that are much more indebted than any of their uh, any of their more red counterparts. Do you think that Congress is going to move in this direction? And what's your argument for or against any kind of direct financial assistance to states that have been hit particularly hard by this? Well, I think we have to stake out a position. I think McConnell staked, uh, staked out the right position. That is when he said, look, we are not going to backstop these states and we shouldn't be backing stop, backstopping the states. Um, you have states like Arizona that had built up a surplus because of, of careful fiscal um, uh, constraints, and they had over a billion dollars in their rainy day fund. Well, now they're going to be in debt anywhere from a billion to two, $2 billion, and that's on a nine, $9 billion, $10 billion budget. So that's really enormous. But on the other hand, you've got uh, Illinois with huge pension debts. You have New York with huge pension debts. Both of them have huge structural deficits and, and debt to their state. We shouldn't have to come into that to to backstop them. Um, and that's one point. The second point, Buck, is, you know, as well as I do, that a lot of the, the draconian measures that these governors have undertaken um, to their economies have devastated their economies. And now they want us to come in and back it up. I think of Larry Hogan in Maryland, who basically shut down all of Maryland, just shut it down completely. And now he's saying, you guys. The federal government should should uh, backfill for us. 
But that isn't the way it works because it, the government isn't uh, some uh, entity that's amorphous and, and, and just out there. The government in the United States of America consists of you and me and everybody else. So when they say government should pay for it, federal government should pay for it, they're saying you and me. And moreover, they're saying our grandkids should be paying for what Maryland did to its own economy. How is your state uh, doing so far? And then we can talk a little bit about what the what the future holds. But how, how has Arizona been in your in your estimation? Obviously, this falls largely in the governor's hands. How's the governor been doing? And, and what would you say about where where your state is at this point? Well, I think Governor Ducey's really tried to walk a, a line here, but uh, I, I don't think we've opened up nearly as fast as we could have and should have. I, I get concerned about hospitals. So once you leave Maricopa County, which is the Phoenix metro area, there's 5 million people there. The rest of the state is 2 million people. And so you have a lot of rural areas and you have a lot of rural hospitals that are gonna shut down um, because they've been told you can't open up uh, for elective surgery. And that's been a, a huge mistake in my opinion. They've shed employees and a lot of them are the biggest employers and one of the biggest employers in small towns in rural Arizona. The other thing I would say is, um, it's been bewildering to many of my constituents why you can go to Walmart and you can uh, uh, basically, you know, show, you know, social distance and shop and be responsible, but you can't go to uh, the neighborhood furniture store or some other brick and mortar retailer, which are your neighbors and they're dying on the vine here because uh, they're not getting any foot traffic and people can't work. I think we need to be opening this up. And, and in Arizona, we're, in my opinion, we're behind a little bit. Um, and uh, and yet at the same time, we have not ever hit the surge that the models all told us that we'd hit by now. How are small businesses doing? And we're speaking to uh, Congressman Andy Biggs in Arizona, of Arizona and in. Uh, Congressman, uh, how, how are small businesses doing? And how do you think the the PPP is going so far? Again, from what you're hearing from constituents, we want a sort of on-the-ground view. Yeah, so... I, um, we get more calls about PPP than anything else, and it, and it's small business is being frustrated because uh, it looks like big business really is kind of sucking it up again, sucking up some of this money again. And, um, you know, so I spent a lot of time yesterday talking to constituents after this re reopened out here for PPP. Those who have received it um, are grateful, and it's going to help, but a lot of them are facing the reality that the employment uh, uh, benefits that have been increased by the feds are actually providing a perverse incentive where people don't want to come back to work, right? That's craziness. The, the other thing is too, we're probably going to lose 30 to 40% of our, of our restaurants here, which is a huge industry. Don't forget that in Arizona, the, the this best time of the year to be here is from February till right about now. And we've been shut down the whole time. That means hoteliers, all the service economy that supports all the tourism industry, the, the spring training baseball, everything that brings in hundreds of millions of dollars to this economy basically shut down. So it's, it's really killed our small businesses. Um, you know, we could, have, we could have been doing things like getting uh, a tax holiday to our small businesses. We chose not to do that. And instead, we're, we've got this money out there and it's going to some places where I know, I actually know some businesses that are doing really well here. And they're getting, they're getting some of this PPP money. And I know other businesses that are really struggling not getting it. So it's really been a convoluted, um, uh, bit of a discombobulated. Uh, uh, do you, Do you think that some of these? Do you think that some of the the states that are opening 
on the earlier side and that are taking uh, more of a, of a leadership position in the reopen. Uh, Texas comes to mind with Governor Abbott. Do you think that that will have an effect not just on neighboring states, but across the country, assuming that the reopen goes without some major spike in cases? Is, is that going to pressure some of the slower to reopen states or you think that p- uh, places are going to, you know, has this honestly just become too political an issue for the facts to matter all that much? I think um, some some places you're going to see it, it, it uh, cause some pressure. So you'll get some peer pressure. You got Georgia. I think it's going to do okay. I think Colorado with uh, Jared Polis, who's a gosh, he's a you know a, just a total liberal Democrat, uh, but he's opening up his state. And and I think you're going to see this pressure come on places like Arizona, where where we could be opening. But on the other hand, you've got these blue governors in blue states that uh, that are using this for a political opportunity. And I think that they've got um, some real um, disconnect, if you want, some uh, with with, resu- with regards to uh, um, opening up. I just don't think they're ever going to open up uh, without more pressure. And that comes from the people. You know, we... I, I hear these governors talk about power. We don't have power. If you're an elected official, you don't have power. You have authority delegated to you by the people. The people have the power, and the people need to be rising up saying, we're ready to go to work. And you're seeing that. You're seeing a nascent movement, and you're seeing also places like social media is trying to shut them down and not letting them organize. You're seeing some governors and uh, trying to get out and, and enforce the, uh, against those kind of protests. But those protests are the heartbeat of America, and they're going to actually, I think, push forward opening it up. Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona, appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for joining us, and we'll uh, we'll be in touch. You take care. Stay safe. Thanks, bro. Yeah, you too. Stay safe, man. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. What we've talked about, and even in phase one and phase two, we've asked people with pre-existing conditions and comorbidities to continue to shelter or shelter as much as they can. And that's part of social distancing. And then everybody who's in those households has to be scrupulous in their hygiene, in their protection, in their social distancing while they're out. And the reason this has become more and more important is we're beginning to understand more and more that there may be an inverse relationship for how severe the disease is and your age. So younger people could actually be infected and not know they are infected and unintentionally pass the virus on. And so that's why we need everyone to be responsible and everyone to take care. So you see everybody by this logic then gets dragged into the most extreme lockdown scenario. Schools have to be closed. Children aren't allowed to, aren't allowed to go to school might not be going to school even in the fall, even though they're at very little risk from the disease itself because of the prospect of possibly passing an asymptomatic uh, for what, what is for them an asymptomatic infection onto somebody who is older. So here we have it. Instead of protecting somebody who is at risk, we are telling everybody to act like they are at risk, too. Uh, th- this is a problem. This is not a this is not a successful long-term approach to this disease and we have to start thinking about a long-term approach the people who thought it was so clever to just lock down and say lock down as long as it takes uh they're going to look very wrong with this this is going to look like a for a a foreign policy a domestic policy disaster in time that was not the right move it may have been the right move for certain states at a certain time again i reserve that it was possible maybe even probable that new york and the surrounding area needed a total lockdown 
because of how badly the disease had already spread here. But in other places, why would anyone think that, you know, the uh, suburban areas of, you know, Minnesota or rural areas of Utah should be under similar restrictions? I mean, you can't go to stores to buy normal stuff in states where they've had uh, there, there are counties in Texas, for example, where they haven't had a single case of COVID-19, whole counties, lots of them. And the stores are all shut down. They're all shut down and there's there's a disease that hasn't even spread to a single person there yet. Well, somehow they were even without the lockdown, they obviously didn't have a big spread because it had spread all over New York by the time we actually put a lockdown in effect. So in some of these other places, when, when the virus was able to spread freely all across the country, there were basically no cases in certain counties. Because the tra- uh, maybe it's a transmissibility issue, maybe it's uh, the demographics, you know, younger people, older people, who knows? But those, those counties are all in lockdown too. It's just wrong. It's a bad idea. And the, the, punishment, uh, the punishment that we're doling out here to young people in particular, and I mean really young people, I don't mean people that are around my age, because we're, I mean, I'm, I'm at a kind of a little bit on the bubble of, you know, I, could, I know people that are, uh, there are cases of people who are my age who have gotten very severe versions of the disease. It can certainly happen. People my age have died from the disease. It can happen. Uh, but if you're under the age of 20, your risk from this Yeah, I mean, technically, you could get strep throat, I guess, and die, right? There's a, if strep throat continues, I forget the progression, but there is some way I think it can actually infect your heart, the bacteria. So it's possible to die from a lot of things, but no one worries about it. If you're under 20, your worry from COVID-19 at this point should be zero. Your worry for your own safety should be zero. Now, your worry for grandma or grandpa, if they live with you in the same house, that's that's a different story. But you also then have to remember, why is it a better idea to make sure that everyone is then staying at home all the time? How does that help out? Increasing, wouldn't that increase the viral load in an enclosed space in a household by having somebody who's not able to go to school, who's not able? And, you know, now people are talking about herd immunity, which I want to bring back up because this is a a maligned concept. This is still people treat this like you're like you're advocating for eugenics or something when you talk about herd immunity. Herd immunity was the medical standard for dealing with cases of disease spread like this for a long time. This was what was understood to be. This is this is what you're trying to achieve. You either get vaccination or herd immunity. But this is this is not some new evil theory that came up where people want to sacrifice the old and, and those with, with health issues in order to promote a, a robust economy. And it is certainly the case that there are, uh, there are going to be slow, there are going to be problems with the economy, slowed, uh, slowed down aspects of the economy, even once it reopens. That same study I, I mentioned to you from the Drudge Report uh, that was commissioned by Kelton Research, or Kelton Global, which is a research firm, found that 69% of Americans are extremely worried about flying on an airplane again, 76% taking a cruise, that number should be like 99 uh, going to it because I just don't like cruises. And I think it's a really, you know, look, I, there's too many of these times when the disease is just spread all over the place on a cruise. Going to a restaurant, 62 percent. I think that's a little extreme. Using a ride sharing service, 58 percent. I also think that's too extreme. I, I will tell you right now, I would with the windows open and a mask on, I would take an Uber. I, I don't think that that's an undue risk. Everyone also, you notice, has to be their own arbiter of their own personal risk. The problem with what we've got going on right now is it's the government telling you, you don't get to make those determinations and distinctions. We tell you 
what you're allowed to do, even if it's not rooted in science, even if it's wrong, and even if it's illegal and unconstitutional, which is a word we should start to use again, unconstitutional. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. I am still in Stockholm, Sweden, where it seems like I am the only person wearing a mask. And even with this terrible weather, it's a little cold, it started raining, people are still out, they are still shopping, they are still going to work. A lot of people are trying to work from home. The government has been recommending, not enforcing social distancing, but not everyone is doing it. And you can go to a restaurant, you can go to a bar. It's a different approach, it's controversial approach, but officials here, health officials say it is sustainable because they're worried that we could be facing some sort of coronavirus threat for potentially years to come. So they didn't want to impose total lockdowns that they thought would collapse the economy, ruin the education system, and do too much damage to society. Why is that approach controversial? You just heard that was an NBC correspondent describing what Sweden has done. We now have seen, because we can look at the uh, the spike in infections after a certain per capita level has been reached, and you've done this, you can do this with European countries, and you can do this lining up U.S. states, including the worst hit states, and Sweden without doing, remember, they, the restaurants are not closed, bars are not closed, businesses are open, and people like to point out, oh, businesses are getting, you know, they're, they're not doing very well in Sweden. Though, yeah, no one's saying it's going to be perfect or a great economy, but it's better, isn't it? I mean, for those of you that operate a small business, if you were told that you could operate at lowered staffing, but you could make, you know, 25, 30 percent of what you normally do while the government figures out how it's going to still try to help businesses. And you know, there's still a lot of things that can happen. Wouldn't you take that opportunity? I mean, I know the answer is yes from people all across the country, but I do think that it's it's worth saying it out loud. Uh, but the objection to Sweden has been so fascinating to watch this, uh, especially because we were told initially that they're going to learn a horrible lesson and Sweden is going to be a disaster. This is what we're going to be told. This is what we were led to believe all along, that, that Sweden was making a huge mistake because they weren't doing the all, all of the above lockdown approach. They didn't do it. And they didn't have a worse outcome than a lot of countries that did have a, an all of the above lockdown approach. And don't tell me this, oh, but you know, it got, got started sooner in, early, in other countries. Sweden has a large immigrant population, a lot of international flights. There's a lot of, a lot of coming and going out of Sweden. Uh, this is not, there's not some reason to believe that uh, these other European countries should have been so much worse off, and they were much worse off on a per capita basis, mind you. You know, one, you, there's all these lazy uh, comparisons that are made. Oh, the U.S. has the most cases of this compared to, and compares it to European countries. All right, well, the U.S. also has five times the population of Italy. So why is it, why is it a worthwhile comparison to say we have more cases than Italy? Of course we do. Of course, we have more cases. And also, how much testing have we done? And, uh, and, I, and I want to talk more about the, the testing mantra soon. But for now, let's just understand that Sweden has been staying in what we would consider the phase one, maybe, or phase two of a reopen here in America. And they have not had this terrible outcome that we were told they would. Once again, 
the experts, the consensus was incorrect. They can they can now talk, talk, talk about how, oh, but Sweden, you know, it's a it's the society is healthier and and they they have less old people living with younger people. They can do all this other analysis. But at the end of the day, here's a country that is operating as though they're trying to go forward with life, even though there's this virus in the background. And their outcome in terms of deaths and infections was not markedly worse and, in fact, was generally better than countries that said, everybody stay home, don't move, don't do anything. Why would we not take that as, as a, an important data point in this process? What explanation could there be that would, that would explain why we should ignore that? Well, it's because there are a lot of people who think that they're very smart, who are also very scared and, and very worried about what would happen if governments were not treated like they were run by smarter, better people than the rest of us. And I'm talking about the media. I'm talking about the establishment, the power establishment in this country and many of our European counterparts. And they don't want to believe that it's possible. Uh, they don't want to believe that it's uh, that there was any other approach here, that there was anything else that could have been done and that maybe they were wrong. That's really what it comes out to. People really hate to be wrong. And this is one where I, I keep finding areas where I hope I'm wrong. You know, when, when I tell you that I think our vaccine, uh, all, the, all these stories about new vaccines going into trials. OK, we'll find out if they work in about a year and a half. I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope that there are much better, much uh, that the vaccines are much more effective and that they come out much sooner than I'm anticipating. But there's also a very decent possibility that we might be dealing with coronavirus on a seasonal basis the way we deal with flu. You get a flu vaccine. Guess what? You can still get the flu. It doesn't mean it's not worth getting the vaccine. But and people who are older and at higher risk get the particularly get the flu vaccine. Others, it's a little more of an ad hoc basis. That's a sustainable path, though. That's something that that we can handle. We can deal with. It seems very possible, maybe even probable at this point, that coronavirus will be somewhat similar to that. That we're going to end up having a you know variable year in year out vaccine that tries to guess what the coronavirus that year will be. This is assuming it mutates. If it stays exactly the same, well then maybe we've got you know maybe we've got a one shot and you're done. Although we don't have that for the common cold. And there are hundreds of cold strains out there as you know, and we don't have that for the flu. So why we would have that? And I don't believe we have a SARS vaccine. So why exactly are we assuming that? Sweden is not taking the approach of, oh, we only have to get to some point and then everything will be better. They're taking the approach of we're going to just push forward. We're going to be smart. We're going to try to take care of people, but we're not going to do what all these other countries have convinced themselves they have to do. And it looks like Sweden was right. And we should be willing to admit that now, especially as we're reopening states. And oh, my gosh, you know, CNN, big headline. Models claim deaths will rise. All these stories about what happens if you reopen too soon. If you reopen too soon, what's not too soon? When is it not too soon to reopen? They keep talking about testing as though that's an answer. It's really not an answer. It's something that they say because the alternative is the recognition that they just don't want to do it. They don't want to take the plunge. They don't want these states uh, and they don't want the rest of America to be able to try uh, to try and push forward, even with the virus looming out there. 
And so they just keep saying, no, 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 you know, the, the testing, the testing has to be better, has to be higher. Let me let me walk you through some of what that really would mean. Uh, when when they say the testing has to be better, how much better? How far away are we from what they say needs to happen? And is it even feasible? And is it something that comes with other costs, too? Let's talk about testing. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. A month and a half ago when um, New Rochelle was quarantined, I called up the mayor. I said, what do you need? He said, if I had tests, I could solve this problem. Adequate tests for everybody. He said, if I give a test to everyone in New Rochelle, if they had the virus, they'd have to stay in. If not, they could go to work, go on the streets. Korea did it. Germany's doing it. Other countries are way ahead of us. And this administration clings to this idea that the states should do it with no plan as to how the states can do it, no rationale as to how the states can do it. It's it's awful. That's all you can say. It's awful. And Mr. President Donald Trump, you're hurting the recovery you want so badly by not having the tests. The best way to recover quickly is testing, testing, testing. And I want I want them to do the right thing. I want them to do the right thing for the American people. And it is frustrating. You know, what's frustrating. I keep hearing this and I hear it from Nancy Pelosi. I hear it from Chuck Schumer, I hear it from other people who uh, I know not to trust at all. And that's frustrating because their their interests are not aligned with what's best for the country. Their interests are always political, explicitly political. Pelosi, Schumer, we know that they don't rise above partisanship. They are partisanship. That's what they're all about. And I keep telling you that there's this repetition of the phrase testing as though somehow that's an answer. What 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 would that really even mean? First, let's start with how close are we? Because this is going to be the complaint. Remember, initially, this was what they were using against the president until it came uh, until it, it became clear that it was really a problem with the CDC and then the FDA. The CDC in the early stages of the pandemic had a messed up test. That's on them. And the president's not no one thinks the president's in there with a little lab coat on and a couple of beakers and, you know, mixing things like a mad scientist coming up with the test. No, CDC had a messed up test and the FDA unnecessarily because it's a large federal bureaucracy. And we understand how those things work or don't work, as the case may be. The FDA slowed down the private testing that could have been a real difference maker in the early stages of getting tests out there. There were plenty of labs that could handle it. And labs that had come up with their own tests to do. But FDA was saying, uh-uh, we have to make sure every, every T is crossed, every I is dotted, even though there's a pandemic breaking out. So they had to back off that a little bit. You remember it was all, oh, Trump didn't have the testing in place. And now we're hearing the same thing. Because this allows them to never have to make a tough decision, right? No, we just have to keep waiting until the testing is in place. There's no way we're going to wait till the testing is in place as they say it needs to be. It's never going to happen. It'll be months and months. Yeah, well, where am I basing this or how, why am I coming to that conclusion? This was on CNN today, which, of course, is a, a chorus of lockdown forever because it's oppositional to Trump. Forget about what it means for the country. It's oppositional to Trump. Oh, and now they're in a position where being opposed to Trump also allows you to walk around feeling so good about yourself because you just care about protecting lives. You don't care about the massive losses to people's livelihoods, uh, to the economy, to the lives that will be lost, to preventable disease, to the alcoholism, to the uh, depression, all these, you know, none of that factors into their analysis. You never hear them talking about it, but they care so much about lives and they get to be opposed to Trump. Wow, it's a twofer. 
according to a Harvard study, this was on CNN today, the United States needs to be conducting 20 million tests per day to reopen the country completely. Right now, the country is conducting about 250,000 tests a day after several weeks during which testing remained at a frustratingly steady 150,000 per day. That means testing has to be increased by 80 times in order to meet the standards determined by researchers. Does anyone think that we're going to have an 80-fold increase in testing in the next month or two? 80 times more testing. This is what this is what the CNN is uh, CNN article is claiming that that the Harvard researchers have come up with. That's the number. Okay, let, let's let's remember. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't play one on radio or TV. But I'm just trying to work through this. I'm trying to think through the problem. As a person who does want what's best for the country and wants us to make the smartest decisions we can. Um, here you go. Uh, 20 million tests a day. That's a, a good chunk of the U.S. population every day. There are 320 million people in the country, right? So we're talking about 20 million tests a day every day. How long do we keep that going? Think about the testing regimen that we're talking about here. 20 million tests a day. And, and at any given time, somebody could become infected a day or two later. So we all have to keep going. You know, we're all going to get tested every two weeks for this disease that if you're under 50 has less than a one in a thousand chance of killing you. You're going to you're going to you really we're going to do this. This is the this is the answer. Remember, we don't know when therapeutics are happening. We don't know when vaccines are happening, but we can't reopen the country until we're doing 20 million tests a day. And, and let's say we get to the 20 million tests a day. OK, that means that we'll have a better idea of, of who's infected. By the time somebody recognizes that they need to get a test, chances are they've already come into contact with people and may very well have infected a couple of them. Now we have personal mitigation measures in place here, but I mean th this this seems to me like we're 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 just delusional about what's possible uh, what's possible here. 20 million tests a day and then we're going to have tracing as well. Who's going to be doing all the tracing? So we're going to get a positive test. And remember, this is not like STD tracing which they also can do. Where they'll say, you know, well, who have you had who have you had sexual relations with for you know most people? That's a pretty easy thing to remember. Who was everyone that went into an elevator after you did, perhaps a few hours later, walked past you in a you know in the aisle of a store, was in the office with you, or was in the home with you, or or touched a button after you touched it? You know, in a building here in New York, we're always touching door handles and buttons that everyone else has to touch all the time. That that's that's going to be the approach. They're going to track those people down and get them to be tested. Think of the government surveillance system that's going to be in place here, too. I mean, th this is just it's just not realistic, folks. It's not going to happen. Right? I mean, I can sit here and tell you we're not going to start doing 20 million tests a day for this disease. 20 million tests a day when th there are testing centers all over the country right now with no customers. There are tests set up in, in states. No one's going to take them. So, so who's going to be taking these 20 million tests a day? If you live in a county, I mentioned, I mean, Texas, a lot of states have whole counties with not. If you live in a county where they haven't had a single case of this disease, you have no symptoms. Are you going to show up and take a, a COVID-19 test because the government says so? Well, maybe if you need to get your immunity passport or whatever they're going to call it. But you know, now, we're, now we're starting to head closer and closer to what feels like a turnkey totalitarianism. Why isn't anyone asking this question? 
What is the testing regimen supposed to be like? And I know the experts keep saying this. The experts also don't know crap about the economy and are operating in this realm of, you know, it's like they're telling 320 million people to act the way they would tell one person in their office to act. And we're just all going to like we're all one one organism that's just going to do whatever we're told. No, no, false. You know, the experts on this issue have been very disappointing. And we should be able to say that out loud. The people that were supposed to see this coming, that were supposed to tell us, give us early warning, know about this virus, understand this. They had warnings before with SARS and MERS, and they should have recognized that this was going to hit us at some point. And there should have been a whole lot more research. Don't even get me started on all the billions of dollars wasted on climate change lunacy while this was growing in the background as a very real science-based, you know, a threat that science could have been uh, working to rectify or, or to at least minimize. No, instead we have this. We have this degree of, of complete and utter uh, absurdity that now comes forward with, if, if, you, if you try to question what the experts tell you, and if you question the testing is the answer, it's like you're a bad person. Meanwhile, this just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make, and the fact that Chuck Schumer is using this as his main line of complaint, what else do you have to know? I mean, Schumer is an incredibly shifty, shady fellow. Right? Schumer is not someone that we should be listening to on this or any other issue for that matter. And this is his go-to. Same thing with Nancy Pelosi. You think all of a sudden they've turned into experts who really listen to the science? No, clearly not. They're not people who should be trusted. They're not people we should be listening to on this. And uh, the, the, the testing mantra has just become a way of avoiding making a tough, a tough call here about opening states. Oh, no, don't do it until the because they can't say don't do it till the vaccine comes or till we have a therapeutic because who knows when that's ever going to be. So now they've set this impossibly high bar with testing that we're never going to meet, at least not for the next three. I mean, when I say never, yeah, maybe in six months. So we're going to stay locked down for six months, folks. Is that is that what they're saying? Because we're not going to be at 20 million tests a day in a month or two. It's not going to happen. So what, what do we make of that? See, that's the thing. I tell you the truth and I do all the reading. I do all the homework beforehand. I show up here and I tell you the truth, even though all the really smart people out there just parrot each other and don't do their own thinking. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to check in with what's going on inside the Bellway, down in the swamp. And I feel like our, our special unofficial swamp correspondent is our main man, Sagar and Jetty, my my former colleague down at the Hill. He is the host of Rising on Hill TV, which is a wonderful show, especially uh, given that it has a fantastic pedigree that stretches now over some of the best young conservatives in the business. Mr. Sagar and Jetty, great to That's have true. you on, sir. Great to see you, Buck. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, first off, man, how, how is it? Just, just tell us how's it going in the swamp these days in terms of the lockdown, and you know what's the feeling. We're trying to get a little bit of a, you know, a sense of what it's like in different parts of the country. We had uh, Congressman Andy Biggs on from Arizona. He's in Arizona right now from Arizona. What he's seeing there. How are things going in D.C.? You know, D.C. is not. Um, it's not like New York City at all. As in the kind of public feeling, the panic, all of that. Even widespread masks are not really. In use, but I mean, everything still is shut down. There's no restaurants. There's no, I mean, people are being kicked out of public parks. There's not necessarily any real public life, but people, and from what I can tell, people are beginning to tire a little bit of the restrictions because we're continuing to see that, you know, things are getting pushed out. You know, May 15th, now June 1st, 
And it's not, I mean, the coronavirus crisis here are growing a little bit, but it's not anywhere like New York City. I would say it's like a mid-range American city in terms of the effect, not nothing out of control like Detroit, New Orleans, or New York. So I wanted to get you on, on issues of, of politics of the day right now. Uh, and you know, let, let's start, if, if we could, with a big endorsement coming for Joe Biden today from none other than Hillary. Yeah, Buck, I mean, it could not be more perfect, right, which is that Hillary Clinton is going to endorse Joe Biden at a virtual women's town hall as him and the media ignore this sexual assault allegation against him, right? I mean, the same people who ran Buck Wild with Julie Swetnick and, you know, gang rape allegations, completely unsubstantiated and were obviously BS at the time to anybody with a hint of scrutiny, are now the ones who are celebrating um, Joe Biden, who are endorsing Joe Biden for president. You know, on our show on Rising, I've literally gone back and played the clip of people like Kamala Harris. As recently as April 2019, she says she believes all of the women who said that Joe Biden made her made them feel uncomfortable whenever he was creepy. This was in April 2019. So exactly a year later, what changed? Well, what changed is she wants to be vice president. And what, you know, what is it with Hillary Clinton? I mean, I guess at least she's consistent. She spent her entire career kind of denigrating um, people accusing her husband and other people of sexual assault. So it's nothing particularly new for her, but it's just the hypocrisy that we see from these people. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Have you even heard someone in the media try to defend? And I I really mean this. I know that there's been a lot of silence, but after Dean, uh, Dean Baquet did his whole, well, you know, Kavanaugh was a really public person in that interview. And everyone said, uh, hold on a second, dude. Uh, the would-be presidential candidate for the Democrats is a pretty public story and person. And, you know, I think everyone was like, wow, that didn't, that didn't even pass the laugh test. Uh, have you seen anyone try to make uh, the case that somehow there isn't a double standard? No, there's just, I mean, only in that interview that you're talking about, Buck, where Ben Smith from the New York Times went to his boss and was like, hey, like, I'm looking at this line-by-line coverage of Julie Swetnick and this allegation, and weird, it just is different. That's the only time anybody's even addressed the double standard. I mean, Buck, Washington Post posts the story. You know, we have a new new development in the case, which is that um, the woman who's accusing Joe Biden of sexual assault terrorism um, a reporter, the same reporter who teamed up with Ronan Farrow to bring down Harvey Weinstein, he went and he found one of her neighbors who said, yeah, she told me about something like this back in 1995. And so, you know, in the when that development arises, the Washington Post writes this headline, Trump allies seize on new developments, um, in and in, seize on new developments against Joe Biden. So the story is not whatever the new reporting is. It's the Trump allies. And I went and I read their stupid story. And down in the bottom, what does it say? Their Trump allies was Mitch McConnell mentioned it once. And Donald Trump Jr. retweeted a few tweets about the terror read allegation. So that's how they get around it, right? They're like conservatives pounce on some crazy thing um, that's being accused of Joe Biden. Not They can't just report straight up what the new development against Biden is. And by the way, the Times doesn't even address it. They're just not going to write about it. They decided. And what what are you hearing about the because we have the Hillary endorsement today, which is fascinating because remember, Hillary, usually you'd think that a vice president after eight years of being vice president would be the natural pick for the Democratic Party. 
So it looks like, you know, if I'm Joe Biden, I just would make sure. I don't know. I mean, Hillary, I feel like she's never really out of it. That's all I'm going to say. I think she plays very dirty. I'm not, that's, all, that's, all, that's all I'm saying. I'm just saying she plays very dirty, and I don't yeah. think she's ever really gives up that she should still be the nominee. Um, but, uh, you know, Biden should definitely keep washing his hands. Uh, but the, the reality here for, for the Biden campaign is they've also got a lot of pressure from, and, and I mean pressure, from Stacey Abrams. I mean, Stacey oh, yeah. Abrams is kind of running around saying, you better make me your vice president. And everyone's kind of like, whoa, this is an interesting campaign. You've never seen anything like it, have you, right, Buck? It's like this this woman who has, was a state legislator, that's all she's ever done, failed candidate for Georgia, somehow conned a lot of people into giving her millions, I literally mean millions of dollars, for some fake nonprofit about protecting the vote, is now out there talking about how she's qualified to be the vice president because she's like, well, black women... Will, can only support like other black women and their issues need to be spoken to. And it's really weird because, you know, if you look at the Democratic primary, that the black women candidate Kamala Harris would often get fourth or fifth amongst black voters. So, you know, maybe that's not how African-American people vote, even in their own party. And yeah, I mean, Stacey Abrams had the gall buck to go out there and say that she should be vice president because she's been, quote, an independent study of foreign policy for 20 years. I mean, independent studies, that means there are graduate students who are probably more qualified to be a vice president than Stacey Abrams. Do you think that, I mean, you know, you're you're uh, in in the swamp, although not a swamp creature. Sagar is one of us, folks. He's one of the good That's ones. True. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but he is down in the swamp, technically. So what are you hearing about, you know, who, who else is kind of uh, rumored and or on the short list for the Biden VP slot, which I, I do think it's fair to believe that this vice presidential pick is important, not just because of the campaign, but also the very real prospect that Joe Biden's health will over the next eight years, if he were to win, deteriorate to the point where the vice president might have to step in. I think that's a realistic. But so who who are the other candidates you're hearing? And do you have any sense as to who's the likeliest at this point? So there's a big fight going on inside the Biden campaign right now. It's do we pick Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams? Or do we pick somebody like Elizabeth Warren? Or do we pick Amy Klobuchar or Gretchen Whitmer? So the Warren case, they're like, well, Elizabeth Warren, you could give something to the progressive base of the party, but she doesn't really bring anything whenever it comes to electoral politics. And she couldn't even win her own home state. And she's actually deeply unpopular in Massachusetts. They could do Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris, right? That's an African-American woman. Um, that's something they they play a lot into the identity politics about how voters supposedly vote, even though that's not true. Or Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, she's the governor of Michigan. She's got a decent approval rating. And of course, Michigan, big battleground state, Trump only won it by something like 0.3 percent of the vote last time. And so they would be looking for a boost there. Plus, she's got executive experience. If I had to guess, Amy Klobuchar is kind of the underdog in all of this because you know, it's funny. I saw this from Chris Matthews. He like emerged from his from his banishment in order to give some advice to Joe Biden. And he said, you know, you can't pick somebody who's going to overshadow you politically. And but you need to pick somebody who could probably do the job. And Amy Klobuchar to the Biden campaign, it seems that she might qualify both of those things. But there's no leading contender right now, as far as I know. And uh, I'm just wondering, Sagar, I've seen some uh, some stuff on, on Twitter. Are you kind of an anti-weed crusader? Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. 
Absolutely. I'm just curious. Yeah. I've never I'm asked you. you asked. I've known you for years. Yeah. I've never asked you about this. Yeah. This is a, a big shift, but you know, we, we got Sagar and Jetty here from the Hill. He's the, he's the rising co-host of the Hill, which is a fantastic show, uh, yeah. obviously. But I'm just wondering, what, like, tell me a little bit about this. I'm just curious. You know, like we're all stuck in quarantine. Okay. Tell us why yeah. Sagar hates weed. Okay, marijuana. A lot of this comes down to this, which is that the greatest con in history is medical marijuana. And this is something I agree with Michael Bloomberg on right now, because so much of the pro pop movement is all about like, oh, my gosh, like I need this marijuana because some kid on YouTube miraculously had his epilepsy cured because he ingested cannabis. OK, maybe maybe that's true in, in like one percent of use cases. But that doesn't mean that pot should just be like completely legal, and widely available and encouraged. I mean, the way I look at it, which is that if you legalize marijuana right now, the way it's working in Colorado, you got more pot shops than you have McDonald's stores. If you same thing uh, in California, is we're just encouraging the use of this drug, which we know is bad effects on kids and IQ for people who are under the age of 25. We know that ingesting large amounts of THC, which all marijuana is these days, right? Like it's not just like a simple drug. This is a very high potency drug, which will put you down for quite a long time because they keep medically engineered, medically and scientifically trying to engineer it to become even more potent. You're basically trying to empower a new to big tobacco. And so look like everyone's like, Oh, well, do you care about alcohol? Yeah, I, I care about alcohol too. But alcohol is also, you know, part of Western civilization for the last 10,000 years. And we don't have a bunch of people walking around talking about how alcohol is the next miracle drug. So I'm just, I just think a lot of like the pot, the pot lobby is just, it's a con. I mean, I think drugs are bad and we should recognize that. And we shouldn't let a bunch of people gaslight us into thinking that like, look, yeah, there's legitimate criminal justice concerns, even though that is some overblown, but that doesn't mean you have to like encourage people to use this drug. If you look at Colorado right now, like one in five pregnant women are using marijuana. Like, I don't think that's good for a developing baby's brain and the surgeon general and a lot of other medical professionals agree with me. So it's, for me, it's more about like the discussion on this whole thing is skewed, which is that it's not just like legalized or not legalized. It's like, it's about use. It's about whether this thing is safe. And there's a whole lot of money behind trying to push the idea that this thing is completely safe, even for like kids to use um, when that's just couldn't be farther from the truth. All right. That was fun, Sagar. I never, I never got to ask you that before. I know some people come at you because you're, you're like, you're like an anti-weed guy on Twitter, and they're like, "Oh, is it worse than yeah. weed, Sagar?" You're like, "Yes, bring it." Yes, actually, yes. It is. <laughs> there you go, <laughs> right. Sagar and Jetty of the Hill, guys. Check Thank out. Give me a platform. What's up? Thank you for giving me a platform because nobody wants to touch this one, dude. I, anytime. I, we'll have you back. For, we'll do a yeah. long form sit down with you at some point. We'll talk about all these things. Uh, Sagar and Jetty, check out their uh, YouTube channel for Rising on, well, the YouTube channel is where you find it, and it's Rising on the Hill. Sagar, right. man, thanks so much. Good luck to you. Give Crystal a big, uh, a big uh, high five. No contact, right? Not allowed. No contact anywhere anymore. But give her yeah, a... No contact. Elbow bump. Give her, yeah, exactly. Give her an elbow bump from me and tell the team down there I said regards. We'll talk to you soon. I will. We miss you, man. Thank you. Thanks, brother. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So, yeah, we've lost a lot of people, but if you look at 
what original projections were, 2.2 million. We're probably heading to 60,000, 70,000. It's far too many. One person is too many for this. And I think we've made a lot of really good decisions. The big decision was closing the border or doing the ban. People coming in from China, obviously, other than American citizens, which had to come in. Think of that question for a moment. He's asked, should a president win if that president loses more Americans in six weeks than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War? I mean, what a what a great DNC talking point attack on President Trump from somebody who was a, quote, journalist. Now, the president responded, I must say, very in, in a very, you know, reasonable fashion to this. I, I would not have been nearly so willing to to take that and, and accept the uh, accept what was offered up there the way that he did. I would have said, what? But, you know, I, I think that with Trump, sometimes you, you never know. He, he keeps the enemy off balance. You never know what, he, what he's going to give them, uh, what, what they're going to come up with. But remember that the other countries around the world that have been dealing with this, too, they've also had terrible death tolls. Look, there, there are some things that are beyond the control of any government uh, to handle or to, or to prevent or to cure. And I think if you just look at what's happened in, in what we nursing homes, old, old folks homes, uh, assisted living care facilities, whatever the appropriate or preferred term may be, and how that's the single place where you would think there'd be the greatest focus outside of actual hospitals to prevent the spread of this because of the risk to the people inside. And no matter what the country is, when you look at all of the all of the death data so far, uh, assisted living facilities have been terribly hit by this. In some cases, I think in Sweden, 50 percent of the deaths are in assisted living facilities. In New York, I think it's pretty close to that, meaning the people that died. When I say in, I should say people that were infected in uh, an assisted living facility and then either uh, either died in that facility or in the hospital after contracting it at the facility. But this just this just shows you, I mean, all the data tells us that people that are in that circumstance are at a very high risk and are particularly vulnerable. And we have not been able to protect them. We have not been able to do what is necessary to protect those folks. So, you know, blaming the government at, at some level, you wonder, well, what's what would be considered a great response? What large country has had a great response to this? You know, for a while, it seemed like the media was willing to go with Trump didn't do as well as China did on this. And then people started to say, well, if you're going to. Uh, force people at gunpoint to stay in their homes and force people to die alone in their homes in what is what is a true house arrest situation, right? They lock you in your home and you're not allowed to leave your home uh, on pain of God knows what the Chinese Communist Party will do to you. I, I think the media moved away from that one a little bit, but they still are, are so invested in creating this narrative that Trump is has been completely ineffective in this, done all the wrong things. And I don't think that's fair. And that's putting it mildly. I think it's inaccurate. I think there have been mistakes, but everybody was making mistakes. I mean, I mean, heck, I spent days beating myself up saying, how could I not have seen how bad this was going to hit the United States, how badly it was going to hit the U.S., and also what it was going to do to our economy. But, you know, this is why I always tell you, nobody can predict the future. People can identify trends. They can be smart analysts of what's out there, but nobody can predict the future, and that includes health experts and politicians when a pandemic is looming. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I think it's time we check in on the one guy whom we all know is going to be able to fix all this. If only we give him the chance. The one person who, if only we could bring ourselves to grasp his brilliance, his fantastic judgment, his command of the situation, and his just lifelong career of nothing but good decision-making and real, real intellectual achievement and moral clarity. If only good old Joe Biden could be running the show right now, we would be in a much better place, and we would certainly be having much better economic intercourse. Play clip one. I would, I would get much more engaged in the world. We can't step back. If, in fact, for example, we solve the problem in the United States of America and you don't solve it other parts of the world, you know what's going to happen. We're going to have, you're going to have travel bans. You're going to not be able to do, have, have economic intercourse around the world. There's a lot. Look, when America goes alone, when, when America is first, it's America alone. And the idea that I would, I would get much more engaged in the world. We can't step back. Yeah. You, you look, you got to be more engaged. You got to be real close, very hands on for your economic intercourse. It's, a, <laughs> it's an important thing. I know, I know you could say, oh, well, what is the what are the full scope of, of definitions and terms that one could use for uh, intercourse? But uh, yep, there you go. Joe Biden, everybody, you can't step back. You need that economic intercourse. You need it to be uh, consistent. You need it to be, you know, you need it to be reliable. And you need it to. All right. I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to get myself into trouble. I'm just going to get myself into trouble. Yep. That's Joe Biden for you. This guy can't go a day speaking from his basement without one looking like an eighth grader reading reading off of note cards like he's running for class president Uh, Two, saying something that everyone goes, huh? And then three, at some point, just breaking down into some kind of blather. And all the Democrats go, yeah, he's a genius. He's amazing. So much better than Trump. We all sit here saying to ourselves, um, why are we supposed to believe that exactly? Why are we supposed to think that he's such a great choice? I'm still waiting for that answer. As we talked to my friend Sagar and Jetty about, he's getting a, an endorsement today from Hillary Clinton. Remember, they picked Hillary over him. Hillary was the choice of the Democratic Party after Joe Biden had been vice president for eight years. Because everybody knew that Joe Biden was kind of a mediocre guy. But, you know, he, he was fine for being Obama's unimportant, uh, unimportant vice president. Right. As, or as in the background as a vice president can really be. And he doesn't have good answers for a whole lot of things, like when he's asked about Hunter Biden's uh, business dealings in China. Remember, he got over a billion. Hunter Biden got over a billion dollars for fun. I mean, Hunter Biden can't even, uh, you know, can't even be trusted to use a prophylactic when he's in the champagne lounge with an exotic dancer uh, while he's a married guy. I mean, you know, Hunter Biden's got big problems of judgment. You're going to give this guy a billion dollars. Maybe if his dad's vice president and you're trying to influence U.S. foreign policy, you will. But when when uh, Joe Biden is asked about this, here's what he says. Play six. 
And are you vulnerable on this issue at all because of your son's business dealings in, in China? No, I don't believe so at all. My son's business dealings were not anything with everybody that he's talking about, not even remotely, number one. Nothing to do with me, number two. And to talk about business dealings, look at the business dealings the president has with China. He owes apparently millions of dollars with the Bank of China. He's, he's got patents from, I mean, this is, this is all about whether or not we're going to be able to coexist with the largest the biggest population in the world, and make sure we're the one to set the standards that the rest of the world repairs to. That's what it's about. And it's about dealing straight up and straightforwardly with China. Uh, there's so much that he said there that's just not true. I also love the, the the business dealings that Hunter Biden has has nothing to do with Joe Biden. Is there a human being with an IQ over, over 30? Is there a human being with an IQ beyond a, a Chia pet? that really believes that Hunter Biden was getting these positions and this money for any reason other than who his dad was? The answer is no. Not even Hunter Biden makes that case. Hunter Biden's like, yeah, I mean, you know, I probably got the position because my dad's vice president. These are foreign companies, foreign countries that are trying to curry influence, trying to buy a little favor. You know, I mean, yeah, it probably is. That's probably what happened. And we're going to be honest, that's probably what Okay, well, thank you. I'm glad we've established that. But, you know, Joe Biden still pretends that that's not true. Oh, I also really want to play for you the response that Joe Biden had when he was pushed on the allegations of sexual assault against him by Tara Reid, a Senate staffer who worked for him, who now has contemporaneous corroboration of really good. Oh, wait, no, there's no audio because no one asked him that question. How can you consider yourself a journalist right now and have access to the Democrat nominee for the presidency who has been credibly accused by a woman on the record who does have a story that lines up. Not a single fact has been wrong or off so far. How can you? And by the way, don't even get me into how the other standard that they set up against Kavanaugh and against Trump was any crazy person who says any crazy thing. It gets treated like uh, like gospel as long as it bashes the right the right target. But how could you have a person who uh, or how could you be a, a journalist and not ask the question when you have access to Joe Biden on this? I, I just wonder. I, I feel like there's no there's no answer unless you're a partisan hack, unless you cannot be trusted and you're somebody who was never really about doing this job of journalism, but you're really just an activist. So that means every person who talks to Joe Biden right now, interviews him as a journalist, is a fake. Or I need a better explanation. Or someone can try to tell me what the better explanation may be. I, I just, I haven't even heard them try yet. No, instead, what they're doing is uh, all lining up to try and get a piece of the Joe Biden uh, that Joe Biden express here. Kamala Harris, who, if you recall, made her her biggest move in the Democrat primary was to more or less call Joe Biden a racist on national TV. That's what she did. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And it had to do with busing. And then I did a whole breakdown on this show of how busing is a more complicated issue than you are led to believe by the media and if you don't think that's true, just go back and look at the studies done and read the testimony of young ki- of, of kids, including young uh, black kids who didn't want to get bussed all the way to the other side of town or all the way, you know, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes from their own community because some well-intentioned white liberals thought that that was better for them. There, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of study on this that you can look at. It's not as it's just not as clear as sending somebody 
to a school district an hour, an hour and a half away is better for them if that's a better school when some people didn't want to go that far. I mean, I'm somebody who doesn't want to commute at all for work if I can avoid it, right? I mean, I've had to commute before. I've had a, up to about a 30 or 40-minute commute, uh, depending on period of my life, each way. But I hate commuting. I, can, I can't imagine commuting 40 minutes to get to school every day if you could avoid it. Anyway, but she went after Biden and said that he was a, uh, said that he was a racist, and now she's saying this about uh, Joe Biden. Play 15. We have a president who has failed to, to embrace the truth, to embrace science, to speak the truth and to elevate the American people. And that's why I'm so proud to be on this in this meeting sponsored and, and, and organized by Joe Biden, who is completely the opposite, who is someone who speaks truth, who embraces fact, it knows how to speak truth, even when it is difficult for us to hear. But he's a true leader in that way. And he is the kind of person who not only has the skills and the experience to lift up the circumstance of the American people during a crisis, but also to lift up our spirits. Wow. He's an amazing guy when he remembers where he is. He's done an incredible job when he's not dropping out of a presidential race for plagiarism or getting less than 1% of the vote or when he's not, you know, being the, the partisan hack that we've all seen for decades who's been wrong consistently on every foreign policy issue and it's just just he's just unimpressive. And I feel like that's the there's nothing about this guy that should make anyone say, yeah, he's and they've known this all along, but they just don't have anyone else that they're comfortable with. I mean, they weren't willing. Ultimately, the left was not willing to take the plunge with Bernie Sanders. They were not willing to do it. I'm going to say the left. I should say the Democratic Party. The left wanted to do it uh, of the Democratic Party. But overall, the the people, the left of center apparatus from centrist e establishment DNC all the way to, you know, crazy socialist young Turk lunatics, uh, they, they weren't willing to they, they weren't able to come to a consensus that that uh, Bernie Sanders was a realistic option for them if they really wanted to win the presidency. I wish that Bernie Sanders had won in a sense, uh, won the, the primary because I really wanted to see a Bernie versus Trump election. And given the trajectory of this country right now with the amount of spending we're doing, the amount of government intervention, I think a Bernie Trump election would be fascinating on a, on a whole bunch of levels. But we're not going to get that. Instead, we have the ultimate insider other than Hillary and, and Obama. But the you know, he's probably third place insider for the Democrats right now who's been in this game for so long and no one has ever said, wow, we're so much better off because of Joe Biden. But you're going to be told to forget all that because now he's amazing. Now he's going to do a great job. Nope. Nope. That's not true. Oh, and he's also making far left promises to try to get the Bernie Sanders base to come out for him. Play seven. With regard to immigration, you said uh, that you would uh, suspend and place a moratorium on deportations for the first hundred days for anyone in the country illegally. Do you still hold to that? And why do you believe that's a good idea? Because we have to straighten things out. Anyone who committed a felony in the meantime would be deported. But we have to take time to take stock of exactly what's going on, who's where, what the truth is, and what's going on at the border. And that's the thing we should be doing now. Because the idea, Jim, you've never seen a time when someone seeking asylum has to seek it from another country. You've never seen a circumstance where we have put people in cages. You know, We have to take stock of where we are. 
are. We are a nation of immigrants. And one of the reasons why we are so powerful and we've been so successful is because we're a nation of immigrants. And the way we're acting both domestically and internationally is is a crying shame. It's not who we are. So let's take stock. I mean, just a lot of dumb slogans and talking points doesn't really mean anything. The people that have been coming to the border, I mean, the ones that we're really referring to here that were using loopholes in immigration law to pretend that they were asylum seekers, they're not asylum seekers. Those like me who went down to the border, who did the research, who spoke to Border Patrol, who looked at the numbers and all along were saying these are not asylum seekers, folks. Guess what? We were right. They are not. They were coached. They were paying. Uh, they were paying the cartels to do what was effectively human smuggling through the back door of U.S. immigration policy. And what they were doing was illegal. They were illegally crossing, and then they were illegally remaining. Yes, they can claim asylum, but they've already. They, they end up doing two illegal immigration acts, and their status is illegal once they stay beyond their court date and don't show up. Uh, but. That's I mean, the Democrats act like we haven't learned all of this. We haven't seen all this. I mean, for Joe Biden, it's just a question of what he can say to uh, stupid libs who will believe whatever he says because he's not Trump. So that's a nice special power that he has, that he can just say anything. And as long as he's not Trump, they'll give him more than the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but but Joe Biden is, you know, uh, it really <laughs> I, Tucker said it so well that one time he needs to be sitting on a bench with a blanket over his knees feeding ducks. He is not the leader of the free world. He should not be the leader, leader of the free world. And it's really reckless and, and stunning in its own way that Democrats are still playing this game where they're putting this guy forward. And this is who's supposed to be leading the country. I mean, they've got to be kidding, but they're not kidding. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You can put this one in the even conservative justices on the Supreme Court cannot be relied on. Uh, so there's a, a case here of and I, I know this one pretty well because it deals with New York City gun laws. And, and they've just the, the Supreme Court punted on this one. Uh, they decided they weren't going to take this up. This is the first time in over a, in, a, in a decade that the court would have looked at Second, Second Amendment issues. And here's what New York was, was saying. New York was saying that, you know, you couldn't really transport, you could only transport your firearm from home to a range. And then people came up with, well, well, hold on a second. What if I'm transporting it from one home to another home? What if I'm transporting it from the home to a range, but I stop and I have a sandwich? And then this was really the argument. This actually came up in court. If I stop to get a cup of coffee with my lawful firearm in the car, and for some reason the police stop me or there's some exchange that involves law enforcement, and I'm getting a coffee and I've got my lawfully owned locked in a lockbox with a trigger guard on it. Because you got to have both those things in New York and separate ammunition also locked in my car. Am I technically in violation? Am I a criminal now? Should I be arrested? You know, what New York City's answer was we're not sure. They didn't know under the law that they had. They weren't they weren't really sure. So the chief justice joined the four liberals here. You, you, John Roberts can't trust him. We knew this from Obamacare. Can't trust them. Another bad judge pick from uh, from the the Bush administration. And, you know, we were all told, oh, that the the court is so far right, so far right. It's just not true. And, you know, he saved them on Obamacare by pretending that language isn't really the language, that words don't have meaning. And now here he is again. The at issue quote, this is from The Wall Street Journal, is a New York City rule that prevents residents with gun licenses 
from transporting their guns from their city homes to shooting ranges and homes outside the city. So you couldn't leave the city of New York with your gun to go to a New York State gun range. How does that make any sense? It's a city only, but there are no ranges here, really. I think there's one or two in the whole city, and they're dumps. So you go through the process, which can take, which was a $431 fee for a premises permit, which means you can just keep it at home. Can't carry it. No, no open or concealed carry. You have to go through a police investigation involving your mental health, criminal history, and moral character. It can take up to six months to get it. And even then... I could not, as a New York City resident, take my gun to a range upstate and go actually shoot and enjoy myself. Weren't allowed. And that's when it also came up with, what if I stopped on the way to that range? Uh, and, and, you know, because then they said, well, we, we've passed. They changed the law here. So what, what the New York State legislature did is they, uh, they changed the law so that, okay, fine, you know, you can, you can uh, do this now. Uh, they, they passed a law saying that, you can go directly between residences and other uh, destinations. But, folks, I mean, this is just absurd. So they make this little change to it. And in the in the argument over this, Justice Alito, what happened is the court says that it's now moot because they changed the law. But there sh- the, the court should have weighed in and said, no, if you legally own your firearm within that legal jurisdiction, you should be able to move it from one residence to another. It can't be can't be locked down just at the one place that you consider your home. That's absurd. And it can't be locked down just within a city if it's a state law. How would that make any sense? And they said, imagine, for example, if you required, uh, and this was brilliant from Justice Alito, a state law enacting that any woman who wishes to obtain an abortion must submit certification, a certification rather, from five doctors that the procedure is medically necessary. And then they bring a challenge in court and they say, okay, sorry, we'll make it only four doctors. Do you think the Supreme Court would say that's not an issue anymore? Of course not. But they did here because Roberts is a wimp who cares more about the court than the Constitution, as we all know, and doesn't want mean things written about him in the New York Times editorial page. So the Second Amendment did not get a clarification. The Constitution did not get a win. And your right to bear arms is still up in the air, unfortunately, because you can't trust conservatives on the court, my friends. You can always trust the libs to be libs, though. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is roll call time, everyone. Thank you very much for staying through to this part. It's one of the more relaxed and, uh, and enjoyable sessions that we have here on the Buck Sexton Show. We also get to ask producer Mark, how far into the uh, Michael Jordan series on ESPN are you right now? I watched all four episodes. Only is it only is it four? Is the whole thing four? No, it's ten, a ten part series, but they're doing two every Sunday night. Ah, yeah, yeah. I've watched the first two with uh, with Snow Princess, and uh, it's it's great. I know it's amazing, and I actually this is brings me back, to Mark, to when I did watch a lot of basketball and grew up uh, as a huge. I was a Knicks fan, but you always had to love it's. See, I always felt differently about the Patriots, where I feel like the Patriots were the bad guys somehow, 100%, even though. Yes. You know, the Patriots are the bad guys. And because uh, as a Giants fan, that's what you think. But with the Bulls, it was kind of like you can't you can't hate that. Like they were so good and and they were such a brand that, you know, I didn't like the Lakers later on when they had Kobe and Shaq because with Shaq, it always felt like you were cheating because the guy was so big and so strong and just dunked all the time. And it was like, what is this? Um, Kobe was amazing, but, you know, RIP. But Shaq was never a fun player to watch, I thought. 
Uh, I think he was at times. I mean, just to see such a dominant paint presence, you've never seen anything like Shaq before. No, and I, I think there's there's never really been a uh, a similar a similar level of of certainly big man dominance like that. And as, as you've been telling me, it's just changed so much now. It, it was when I was growing up. I remember if you were a seven footer, the expectation was that you basically couldn't dribble, you really couldn't shoot. And like maybe you had some kind of an in the paint, you know, baby sky hook or something like that. You know, there was some move that you had, but really you were there to like block shots, rebound and just be a big presence. And now they've got guys who have point guard skills who are 6'11 and it's like normal. Yeah, I mean, that, and Scottie Pippen kind of started that as we go back to the Bulls. I mean, he was the first point forward where he grew up as a point guard and then shot up to become 6'7", 6'8", but he still had the point guard skills. Yeah, what's so amazing is ES- in this ESPN documentary, which I do, I'm watching two great things lately, actually three great things, so I can recommend all of these. I've been meaning to bring this up. The Crown is, I don't know if you'll like it, Producer Mark. It's a little too much like, eh, who's having tea? Is Producer Mark having tea? Yeah, I don't not know if my cup like of tea. Yeah, it's not your cup of tea. Uh, but I think for a lot of the folks at home, you really, I mean, the set design is, I mean, it's just, it's amazingly well done for what it is. And if you like Churchill stuff, there's a lot of Winston Churchill. Um, although it's played by, played by an American, which I think is so interesting. And then you have uh, the, as I said, the ESPN series on, which is, which is really good. It's just very well done. And it brings you back to God. I think the nineties were like the best time in human history. Late nineties was an amazing, amazing period. Uh, and then you also have uh, the Waco series. Have you seen that? I saw you tweeting about it. I'm, I'm interested. Really good. Really, really good. Highly, highly recommend the Waco series so far. Taylor Kitsch, who plays Tim Riggins in Friday Night Lights, which is the TV show that I really enjoyed back in the day. Uh, he's the lead guy. He's David Koresh. He's phenomenal in the role. And I don't usually think of Taylor Kitsch as a great actor, but he's really good in it. And it's just a, a really it's a good movie and it pulls no punches about the federal government and what a and given what we're finding out right now about uh, the, the whole Russia collusion thing and, and how just corrupt and gross the FBI and DOJ were at the very top level. You go back and see what happened. And I'm not even that far into it right now, but see what happened at Ruby Ridge in Idaho and then also at Waco after that and what the uh, what the ATF E now it's E. It used to just be ATF. What they were up to, I think you'll actually really like it, man. It's a, it's a really good show. Do you remember that you were? I mean, you're really young, so you weren't even. I don't know. You were probably like a, an amiibo when this thing happened, but yeah, it'll just be a news show to me. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a news, but that's very. It's very well done. I do. I do recommend it. And uh, and I I will say that the Crown, man, when you're all snuggled up on a rainy Saturday night under quarantine and you can watch like three or four episodes of the Crown, it's good, man. It makes you Good feel stuff. bougie like the rest of your life. It feels super bougie watching The Crown. You sit there, you drink only the finest tea. Only the finest teas and crumpets. So, Do you actually make crumpets? Do they have gluten-free crumpets? Make crumpets? Crumpets wouldn't be that. We could make crumpets. What is a crumpet? I don't even know. It's not to be confused with a strumpet. Very different. Of course. A crumpet is just for the important safety tip out there. A crumpet is, uh, is like a scone kind of, right? Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. A crumpet's kind of, it's like a baked good. Okay. It's right, roll delicious. call. We're gonna we're gonna ba- we're gonna save ourselves here with roll call. It's roll call time. Doug is first up. Buck is back. Buck again. Uh, back again. I love the opener of Friday's show. The pragmatic, clear-eyed Buck slayed the virus propaganda hypocrisy. Thank you so much, Doug. P.S. 
I just added BuckSexton.com to my favorites bar. Well, that is awesome. Please keep, please keep tuning in. Please, uh, you know, go to, go to BuckSexton.com as much as you can. That's what we're going to be pushing folks to be doing. Matthew, um, we got stories going up there. We got all kinds of fun things. We're going to have, you know, we, we have all, lots of fun ideas and plans that are going to be going there. Matthew, hey, Buck, I've been enjoying your perspective and program from Longmont, Colorado, just north of Boulder on 760 AM. Freedom, 93.7. Thank you, and keep up representing our conservative voice. Hey, man, I I love Team Buck Colorado is just going so very strong, and it's it's been amazing to see how well this show has been uh, been going over there uh, because we've only been on air there for, I think, about six months, maybe nine months now. And uh, we are the number one talk show in our time slot in the Denver area, which there's a lot of different radio radio shows going on there, talk radio shows. So we are beating everybody else in our time slot in Denver right now in the ratings. So, yeah, thank you, Denver. You guys rock. And and also Longmont, Colorado, north of Boulder, uh, 760 a.m. Thank you so much. Leonard. Hey, Buck, it looks to me like the people protesting going back to work are being organized by the Democrats they're making more money on unemployment now than they were when they were working. Um, well, Leonard, I, I haven't seen that yet, but uh, I, I do know that there are people that work in the restaurant industry who don't want to go back right now because, and it, look, it's understandable. The financial incentive to stay home is stronger than going to work. Now, this was known before they passed that bill. This was known, but they didn't want to uh, scale back. They didn't want to change the bill They just wanted to allow it to proceed as it was. So, you know, there's definitely something there was definitely something going on there Um, with the Democrats, I think, wanted to create a greater degree of dependency and and wanted to push people even further into the government's arms than they already are right now. And that was a, a mechanism for doing so. Once you make sure that there's more money and not working than working, guess what? People will make rational decisions. And they did. Uh, let's see here. Kendra. Hey, Buck. I'm starting to think we are all essential workers. What do you think? No offense to those who have been out there since day one, but this economy needs all of us. Um, Kendra, I I take your point. And I think everyone's job to them is essential. And it felt a little bit, a little callous when you had all these different politicians coming out and saying that, uh, you know, certain people were essential and others were not. And especially when you see the way that that has worked in the retail sector, where, you know, if you sell, you know, you can sell certain things in the stores, but not sell other things. Well, that affects the producers of those products. If you're already in Walmart, why can't you buy seeds, for example? I mean, some of the restrictions they've had in place have just been absurd. Um, But, you know, there's also an interesting I've been reading this and I think it's a, a pretty esteemed professor at Yale Law School who is writing that there may in fact be legitimate legal challenge to some of these state designations of non-essential workers because this is not a temporary closure. This isn't like two days when there's a hurricane or two days when there's a tornado or something. This is an indefinite this is an indefinite shutdown of businesses on order of the state, which legally could qualify as uh, under the takings clause, right? That this could this could be considered an illegal taking of private property by the government and without any rationale or specific justification about why some businesses were closed and others were not uh, that satisfies a court, there may be legal actions that can be taken here. I'll, I'll try to find that. I read that piece this morning. I thought it was interesting. I'm not 
I'm not sure that the author is right, but it's certainly a worthy thought exercise. He's a very smart, uh, very smart guy. You can tell uh, as a professor at Yale Law School. So, and that, by the way, being a professor at Yale Law School doesn't make you smart. But this guy who happens to be a professor at Yale Law School does strike me as very, very intelligent the way he makes the argument, the way he walks through the process. Uh, Kendra. Oh, no. Sarah. Hey, Buck. Appreciate the show. Sarah, the show appreciates you. On mail-in ballots, Washington State has had mail-in only voting for a decade or more. I hate it. It's convenient, but that's the only upside. I have zero confidence in the validity of the process. Every time there's been a need for a recount, carloads of missing, uncounted ballots magically appear. And without fail, they are Democrat votes. I'm sure there's a surface-level method of accountability, but Olympia is beyond corrupt. Well, Sarah, I'm sure that's true. I don't know. Washington State's not a state I know that well. I've never been to Washington State. Um, I've been to your little cousin to the South, Oregon, and spent some time at uh, in Portland, which, as we know, is the heartland of Antifa, and also out at Cannon Beach in Oregon, which I got to say was beautiful. I really like that place a lot. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that the mail-in voting process is just, it's an invitation for shenanigans and for fraud and for a lack of confidence in the process. Um, I, I think it's also important that people people should show up. There should be this this active participant component of your citizenship where if you're going to go and vote, you actually have to go and vote unless you have a really good reason not to. Right? I mean, U.S. military, if you've got mail, if you've got to take absentee ballots, we understand that there are some reasons. But in general, and look, the, the chances of being exposed to the virus, if you show up and you have social distancing in lines, it seems to me by November will be pretty small. But look, this is also going to be a, a decision that's not really made until we know what we're facing in the fall. Uh, once we know what we're facing with this virus, then we'll have a much better sense of whether or not um, whether or not there's a need to even worry about uh, about COVID-19 at that point. Aaron, hey, Buck, the Waco show on Netflix, which we were just talking about, has really upset my wife because she didn't know much of anything about it and only knew the basic facts. It has driven me into a real internal conflict of what to believe and wondered if you were experienced any of this yourself. I would like to find more books and resources strictly dealing in facts and wondered if you have or plan on doing the same. Please send some ideas my way because it is getting harder and harder to figure out who and what to believe. Well, Aaron, I'm only two episodes into it, and I've got a uh, this is what I've been watching by myself when the Snow Princess is not around to keep me company. And it's just me and Tallulah and Tallulah, the Frenchie, does not uh, weigh in on my Netflix choices. So she's she is quiet. But Snow Princess, uh, as a fellow human being, does have opinions on the show. So we do it slightly different. What I'm just saying we do a slightly different approach there with uh, we balance. We balance our desires for what to watch. Uh, but the Waco show, I'm two episodes into it, and it is uh, very good. I, I haven't gotten to the point yet where we see how bad things really go. And I'll tell you this. I kind of remember Waco because I remember there was also an HBO series done on it many years ago. I remember Waco in the news, but I was so young. I mean, it was 93. I was 12 years old. I was so young that I don't really have any recollection of it in a in a way where I would understand anything from the time. And I, I want to go back and read more about it. Uh, so I'm with you, Aaron. I, I can't really guide you on this one because I don't know more than you on this one. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. Well, I was, I'm still watching the show 
And I mean, I have a feeling the ATF is going to look really bad, which doesn't surprise me. And I also would note, you know, there there's they're, they're clearly setting it up for an internal conflict within the FBI, too. But we got to we got to figure this one out. We'll see. We'll see. I'll come back to you when I have more on that one. Andrew Shields. Hi, Buckster. I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the city council decreed today that they're going to fine me three hundred dollars if they catch me on the street without a mask. Wow, that's nuts. I've heard you say many times that the uh, Chicom flu is hard to transmit unless someone contagious coughs in your face. But I need your source for that because it runs counter to everything the hysteriocracy is trying to ram down my throat. I'm in Boston. You're in New York, New York City. You're much younger than me, but it's time to let us build out the herd immunity. The nation depends on it. You and Mark keep up the good work. Um, Andrew, thanks so much, man. I mean, I, I don't really have a source for it other than there's no source to support wearing masks in public in open air as necessary or helpful for the pre- preventing the spread of this disease. There's a very large study that came out of China looking at transmissions there, and almost none of the transmissions were even attributed to being outside. This is a disease that spreads indoors, and it, it spreads indoors best in environments where there's not a lot of sunlight, not a lot of fresh air, not a lot of heat. So we already know that, and we're heading into summer, and I'm sure it gets very warm in Cambridge, Massachusetts in June and July, and that people are going to think they have to walk around with masks on is, is just absurd. It's just absurd. Um, now, look, if you're 76 years old and you have, uh, you, know, you have serious heart problems or you have type 2 diabetes, would you maybe want to take an extra precaution when you're outside of having some kind of a covering on your face? Maybe. But remember, the covering on the face is mostly to prevent you from giving it to other people. It's not really to protect you from those people. So it's like if everyone takes a step of protecting the other people, then we're supposed to be in a much better position with this. But it is not it is not the case that if you have a basic surgical mask on, you are considered to be, uh, you know, well protected against this disease. It might give some degree of protection. They're not even, they're not really sure. Keep in mind, if it's if it's aerosolized droplets, which may, in fact, play a larger role than anticipated in transmission, if that's the case then uh, guess what? That could get in your eyes. So it's not even just your nose and mouth that you have to be concerned about. There are, there are other possibilities there as well. Todd writes, Hello, Buck. I just want to send you a note saying last week's shows were all top-notch. However, the highlight, without a doubt, was your conversation with Uncle Ted. Flippin' freaking fantastic. I was sh- uh, so shocked to hear him on your show because he's not your normal type of guest. I absolutely loved hearing your conversation with him. On Saturday, I listened to your full podcast interview with him and will listen to it again. He talks so fast and is so spot on that my brain was overloaded with his truths and logical analysis of life today. God bless you and God bless the USA. P.S. Producer Mark, thank you for recommending the Last Dance documentary. I watched two episodes last night and I loved it. Producer Mark, what would you like to say? You're welcome. I'm always here for your sports recommendations. There you go. That's right. Yeah, you guys direct all your sports inquiries. You can just put, you know, for producer Mark dash and put in whatever your sports question is. Otherwise, I'm going to tell you about all the touchdowns that I scored on the hockey field. And you don't need that. You don't need that right Oy now. Vey. Yeah. All right, everybody. Fantastic show today. Go to bucksexton.com if you have not already. Please bookmark it. Check in as you can. It's a great way for the team to see what's going on and keep in touch. Tell somebody to download the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way to do it. Mark and I will be back tomorrow. Same time, same place. Shields high.